Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 50. This one is a film marketing special with Mike Leader, casting director and film producer. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to this special recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. Joining me is a man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the Marketing Affairs Podcast and the author of Cats, Mats and Marketing Plans. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you so much. And of course, you, my co-host, are also a man on the mission to demystify digital marketing, the host of the Content Marketing Studio podcast, Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Okay, Roger. Different intro because this is a very special recording, as I mentioned a moment ago. This is episode 50. Absolutely. And we have got something really special for you for episode 50. In fact, we've already recorded the show, haven't we, Pascal? We did. We had to. That's all part we of had the wonders magic, magic of audio recording and video recording. We went for a film marketing special. This will not surprise our regular viewers and listeners. And we have a guest. Yeah, we have a guest. We've already done the interview, so it feels a little bit weird that we're now recording <laughs> the introduction to an interview that we've already done. First time for us, of course. Would you give us a quick overview of our special guest, please, Roger? Yeah. Now, our special guest is Mr. Mike Leader. Now, Mike Leader is a casting director. He's a producer, consultant, and actor who's based in Hong Kong. So you can immediately tell that we had time difference issues to contend with. He also finds the time to write extensively about Asian and international action cinema for various magazines, and he has helped produce special features for many DVDs and Blu-rays. He's had a career spanning nearly three decades, Roger. I mean, frankly, his IMDb and Wikipedia pages read like an action movie fan dream come true. But importantly, as you'll hear and see in a moment, he's one of the nicest men you'll ever meet. Yeah, and honestly, the interview is really, really interesting. We went down so many rabbit holes, Pascal. Uh, but just a little word of warning before we get into the interview – we did have the time difference, so there might be a little bit of uh, background noise as you get immersed into the sort of Hong Kong atmosphere. <laughs> you know, you actually do feel as we've been sucked into the uh, establishment that Mike was sat in whilst we recorded the episode. So Mike's sound might be a little bit um, uh, different to what you're expecting, but we've managed to tidy it up and the interview is still really interesting. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, we battled against tech, time zones, difference and so on, but it was all worth it. Roger, viewers and listeners, yep. let's get to Hong Kong. A special film marketing episode with the one and only Mike Leader. Mike, a warm welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here, guys. No problem at all. We're going to have to get used to this slight delay because you are not only the very first guest on the show, but you are also an international guest. Uh, yes, I'm actually on the Isle of Wight, and it's. Uh... <laughs> no, I'm actually in Hong Kong, where I've been for the last thirty odd years. So. Occasionally, there's a time. It's it's six fifteen, six six ten in the evening for me, and ten o'clock for you guys in the morning for you guys. So we're getting there. 
we're yeah. getting there. So, Roger and I made an introduction. It's, it's before better than recording. when I deal with Americans and they're on the day before. Yeah. Normally, I find the problem is normally when you deal with America and what frustrates me is they will ask me what is a good time to call me. And I will tell them there's a 15 hour time difference. Yeah, like nine o'clock in the morning, your time is good. Five o'clock in the afternoon, your time is good. And they'll call me at two o'clock in the morning, Hong Kong time. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's all mad. But yeah, um, I said, I apologize for the delay. And is there anything I need to re record? Just let us know. And then, yeah, let's get started. Let's get started. So, when we made the introduction just before you joined us, we mentioned that your IMDb and Wikipedia pages read like an action movie fan dreams come true. Is that how it feels really to, to, you know, you get up in the morning, you drink your cup of tea or coffee for you, you know, that you like coffee and you think, my goodness, I'm pretty lucky. Yeah. I mean, as cheesy and cliched as it sounds, you know, we all have good days and bad days, but I still wake up pretty much excited to be in Hong Kong and to be doing what I'm doing. And I am the idiot who very happily runs off to work in the morning to work on a movie or something or to do an interview. And um, it, it's, it's very funny because there's, um, when I first came, it was quite an eye-opener in Hong Kong to, to realize how many people in Hong Kong just regarded film as a, as a, as a job. They weren't fans of it themselves, but there's, um, kind of like a new generation of filmmakers and actors and directors who are also fans. So it's, it's, it's quite funny, but it's just, you know, like I'm the guy who'll be on set asking some actor or director about some, some movie they have no memory of, you know, that, that to me is the greatest movie that ever existed and to them was a day of work 50 years ago. So it's all good fun. But yeah, um, I think I've been very lucky um, to work with a lot of people yeah, I've worked with a lot of my heroes and been lucky enough to become friends with many of them. And it's um, it's a lot better than working in orders of credit. I'll say that. You know, I used to be a department store boy. So, you know, what was originally going to be, I think a, my, my game plan was maybe I'd come to Hong Kong for a couple of weeks just to have a holiday. And 32, <laughs> 32 years later, I'm still here. So, yeah. <laughs> And can I just ask, because Roger and I have this same conversation, uh, why Hong Kong? Why not Los Angeles or, or, the, or the part of the world? Um, I always loved Hong Kong movies. Um, and I, I was... I'm sorry. At the time, Hong Kong was a British colony, so I didn't need a work visa. <laughs> I was lazy. I just thought, where, where do I have to do the least amount of paperwork or anything? Um, no, so I loved Hong Kong movies, so I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to Hong Kong for a couple of weeks. If I'm lucky, maybe I'll get to see a movie being filmed. If I'm really lucky, maybe I can be an extra on a movie or something. And I think the second day I was here, I was working on a movie. So, uh, no, second day I was working on a commercial for diarrhea medicine, and it's still on TV 30-something <laughs> years later. Um, and I got the princely sum of, uh, I think, 60 pounds for the day, which, which I thought was just great fun. And the actor in question was this old uh, Hong Kong Chinese actor who I don't think had ever had a Westerner recognize him before and was very bemused that I was like, oh, my God, you're Wu Fong. Yeah, you did all these movies. So, yeah, yeah um, I've thought about going to L.A., but I get the op it's 
I get the opportunities in Asia that I wouldn't get in the West because there's not as many of us here. <laughs> and um, here it's much easier to multitask. Like uh, I can be a casting director, I can be a producer, I can be a sometimes actor, I can work on stunts, etc. Whereas in the West, you get much more marginalized into this is this is where you should focus. And I just like to jump around and go wherever. So yeah. Ah, uh, super. Well, I know, Roger, uh, I've got an advantage because I know a little about Mike. You've got some questions about his career and how he got started. Yeah, I mean, Mike, it's, it's so fascinating to talk to you. I, I do have a bit of a link to the film industry is in that my sister, uh, she she lives in Venice in uh, Los Angeles, and she's been a, a, a theatrical agent for about 35 years. Um, her, her claim to fame is that she was the manager of, Paul, of uh, Patrick Swayze uh, during his career and uh, when he was doing films like Ghost and, and Point, and point break but one of the one of the things i've always been interested in is this just the concept of a film producer and you know it, it's interesting i've worked in big corporates in marketing roles and, and and i've managed projects and sometimes it's hellishly difficult to manage 50 people on a project and then just a few days ago we were watching uh, black widow the new uh, Marvel film and the, the end credits roll for about eight minutes. And there are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people involved. And is the, the film producer is managing the entire operation. And I just think that is a staggering amount of responsibility. And it would be really interesting to learn a little bit more about how that actually works. Yeah. I mean, it can be crazy. Like, um, in China, for instance, like when we were doing Fearless with Jet Li, uh, for the ending, we had 5,000 extras every day. And that was for like six and a half weeks, solid. And just trying to manage that situation of getting them there on time, getting them into costume, getting them fed, getting them to take bathroom breaks appropriately, etc. It, it's funny because there's there's various levels of producing. There's the financial producers who often don't come to the set, and I'm much happier when they don't because otherwise <laughs> they ask all the stupid questions. Um, because it, you're literally they'll turn up, and you and Pascal and myself will have just spent a whole day building the set, and they'll turn up while the actors are, are rehearsing and ask questions about why those three guys are just sitting around doing nothing, mm. you know, without working out that we built the damn thing. So um, it is a lot of management and it's a lot of people skills and working with people's egos, um, which is, I hate to say the biggest problem. Mm. Um, I love the industry, but egos are a huge issue. Um, I've seen a lot of talented people who their ego has knocked them down and messed them up, and it's it's very frustrating. So it is very much it's a it's a constant game of junk, of a Jenga. You're constantly you're juggling and removing. And if I take this out and put it somewhere else, and if I pay Pascal, can I borrow money from Pascal then to pay Roger? Yeah. And often as well, like sometimes the crazy thing is in the middle of production, a new producer will come on board because maybe you've run out of money and new money has come in. Um, so it can become very 
comes like it's I wish I'd learned how to be a producer before I became a producer <laughs> because maybe that would teach me that there's an easier way to do things because you know you watch all these Hollywood movies and producers are just sitting around smoking cigars and having a good time and then when you're producing the movie you're pulling your hair out um because you know the weather because locations change because actors change because people forget costumes um people have a shave halfway through a film um <laughs> i did a movie with an actor and two weeks into production we shot we shot the first two weeks done really well we had a week off when we came back the main actor had, had a nose job <laughs> and i was the first one to notice it i was like his nose has changed shape <laughs> and everyone was like don't be ridiculous well hang on and then he was like oh yeah i had a nose job and we were like but we've already shot for two weeks, you know. So there is a lot of that. There's a lot of juggling and a lot of um, – it's, it's really hard to say. I mean, it's – because, like, I've worked on very big-budget movies where sometimes you have no idea who's producing it because they're on the other side of the world. Um, other times you're on movies where the production budget is literally – as I think Pascal learned, sometimes it's the production budget is what you've got in your pocket, um, which at least that way you know what you've got. You're not waiting on a promise. Um, and it can be frustrating. Like um, Sometimes you'll do a movie and you'll realize, okay, we've got a pretty good budget. And then you realize, oh, there's all these producers who are getting paid a large sum of money who aren't doing anything. Um, there's a, I can't really name the movie. Um, but there's a movie I did that was a, a sequel and we had a really good budget for, for the sequel and where we were shooting it. And then I realized there were 10 producers who were all getting 250,000 US dollars a pop of which only one of them was actually on location working. Mm. Um, and I was like, wow, you know, a good 40% of the budget is now gone. Um, for people who are never going to come anywhere near this project. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it, it's just a lot of juggling and a lot of trying to deal with insanity. So <laughs> yeah. And then you get, um, but some people revel in it. There's a, a Hong Kong producer, director and writer called uh, Wong Jing. who did the God of Gamblers movies. Um, yeah, Rape by Name, etc. He's the ultimate producer because nothing will phase him. And like, uh, we were shooting the Donnie Yen movie, uh, Chasing the Dragon. And they'd built in the old Shaw Brothers, in the new Shaw Brothers studio, um, a huge set for the Kowloon Walled City from like Bloodsport, um, where most of the movie was set. And one day I was joking with Wong Jing, like, hey man, this is, this is such an awesome set. Can I come in tonight? and film my own movie. And he was like, no, no, I'm already doing that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I began to realize that every day I would see crew who were nothing to do with our movie turning up. And he was like, I paid for this location. I paid for this set. And he shot three movies on that location <laughs> before we moved out. Um, and, and so sometimes you get a producer like that who completely knows, okay, where I can spend the money, where I can risk it. Um, I did a movie for Roger Corman and Roger's the same thing. Roger is completely and utterly aware of how far a dollar can go 
how far you can push it, how far you can beg and borrow. Um, and I think sometimes the low budget stuff is a great way to learn because you can get spoiled on the big budget movies. Like, um, like a, do you know the reality show, The Amazing Race? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, 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 yes. Um, like, I, yeah, yeah, I've worked on the American version, the Asian version, the Israeli version, the German version. And on the American version, there is more money than you'd ever need. You know, you can have a production assistant on every single alleyway in Camden Market. You know, it's, it's fantastic. You know, and they'll, they'll be like, okay, maybe we're going to film at Pascal's house. Maybe we're going to film at Rogers. Okay, pay them both so that we can have the location. And it's fantastic. But then you'll do the Asian one and your budget is 10% of that. And unfortunately, Pascal and Roger now are like, well, last time you came, you paid me $100. Mm. So I expect $100 this time. Um, so sometimes I think it's a case of when you do the lower budget stuff, you have to, you have to become practical. You have to think. You have to, to get, your, get your head going, get your fingers dirty. Sometimes I think on the big budget stuff, it's easy to spend money in the wrong ways because nobody's stopping you. Um, when we did the Mummy 3, for instance, uh, the Mummy 3 shot in Canada, England, and China. And in Canada, they shot interiors based on standing locations in China um, and spent far more money in Canada than shooting in China would have cost. And you literally spent money duplicating stuff at 10 times the cost, but we were like, but in China, I can do that for $50. You're doing it for $500. And simple things like the amount of crew they brought over, you know, whatever money was being saved was being spent, um, like on per diems, on hotels. Um, and, it, and it sometimes just becomes crazy. So it, it's, I don't think anyone sets out to be a producer. You know? <laughs> Everyone wants to be a director or something else, but you, you sort of kind of get sidelined sometimes into producing. And so there's some producers who are awesome in the best ways possible. There's some producers who are ridiculously mercenary. And it's just trying to find that balance. And I've waffled on too much on that one. So, yeah. Not at all. Uh, actually, the, the good thing about talking to you right now is because through our uh, careers as marketing consultants, Roger and I, but also this podcast, we make links between the, the behavior and the ingenuity of filmmakers and what you need to do as a marketer with little time, little money, little resources, and yet you've got to make it happen, yet you've got to get a video ad, yet you've got to get you know, this campaign to engage an audience whilst you wish you had more time, you wish you had more money, and you wish you had more resources. And certainly for the last few years, I've been a bit more vocal saying, if you want to understand what it means to be entrepreneurial, and to be a damn good project manager, look at the indie filmmakers. Not exactly, because that way you learn. You, you know, like Pascal, when you shot your movie, you learned about people promising to be there, people deciding they wanted to go home, location issues. Um, 
permits, weather. Um, okay, when we did Baz Luhrmann's Australia, we were filming at Ayers Rock, and for the first time in 200 years, it rained. <laughs> and you know, normally when you're doing a movie, you'll have rain cover. But of course, Ayers Rock, it doesn't rain. Nobody had thought about that. And someone had to call the Fox executives and go, oh, it's raining. Sorry. <laughs> and you know, there's things like that. Like, uh, look at COVID, for instance. Um, I was I was meant to do a huge project for British TV. And we were meant to start it the year earlier, but the Hong Kong protests kind of pushed it back. And then they were like, we'll come back in 2020. And then COVID came. And that project had probably spent close to a million pounds on pre-production, on you know, going around the world, finding locations, finding cast, finding crew. You know, um, so there's a lot of that lunacy, and there is that thing of exactly trying to work out what can be done for no money, what can be done, you know, on a limited location. Like a okay, Pascal, on your movie. How many locations did you have? Just well, a rough idea. Like how many locations? All the, well, they were all in north of England, but I had seventy-five locations. See, you're a madman. That was, <laughs> you, know, you know, because on paper you go, "Oh yeah, okay, I can wangle that," and then you realise, "Hang on, that's seventy-five different locations, and you've got to get there, you've got to set up, you've got to think." One of the reasons, like, um, with Gareth Evans when he did the raid. It was that we, was that thing of if I'm in one location, I can save time and money because I can leave stuff there. I, I don't have to travel. I don't have to to think. It's yeah. I mean, it's an awesome movie and he's an incredible filmmaker. But even he was like, shit. If I'm in one location, I can control it. Um, and it does become that madness of just um, you know the you know the same way when you're on a on a no budget or low budget movie. You can get stuff for free sometimes. And then when you're in a big budget movie, bizarrely, often you'll have to pay for stuff, of course, but then also people will give you stuff for free and you go, but we have the money. Like, you know, when I was making my small movie, if you'd given me that, it would have been much more helpful. Um, <laughs> but like, uh, I just did an indie movie here. The working title is Hong Kong Love Story. And the, the thing with that is it's set in a very bling-bling world, but we didn't have a bling-bling budget. So um, it took a lot of creative filmmaking um, because we needed fancy cars, we needed fancy hotels, we needed fancy restaurants, high-class models. We needed to sell this image. And, of course, on paper, you don't realize how expensive that's going to be. <laughs> you know, so I think as a, you know, if you if you... If you give the budget to an indie filmmaker sometimes, like, um, I don't know if you've come across him, there's a, a, a gentleman in Ireland called George Clark. Yeah, George, uh, he's yeah, yeah. Like a, a, he's a, yeah, a maverick, to say the least. Um, Albert Pyun and myself were at one of his festivals, and Albert Pyun said, I'd love to give him a budget, but look at him. He enjoys this. He enjoys filmmaking. If I give him a budget, it won't become fun anymore because suddenly then you've got to answer questions. You've got to budget stuff. You've got to let people know. Whereas 
you know, when you're in the UR, just like, fuck it, let's grab the camera and do it. So I think it is, it's, it's, yeah, as, as Pascal said, it's finding that balance and it's learning the ingenuity. And I think the best filmmakers are the ones who have understood how to use the low budget mindset on a big budget movie. Yeah, uh, thank you for that. And by the way, about the 75 locations, because like you said, I thought that's what I had to do to impress people like you. And I learned the hardware that I wasn't required, of course. Is that why you never sent me the movie? It's like, yeah. <laughs> so listen, just to give us a structure for you to give us some insight into the world of indie filmmaking, we've chosen, I mean, your the list of films you've been involved in is quite extensive. So we've chosen three where you have three different roles. So Roger, start us with the first selection. You do not know what your brother does for a living. What I'm really good at is killing people. Where's my kidney? for inspiration uh, we were going to ask you about pound of flesh which obviously um uh, has jean-claude van damme in there and a, and a truly international cast uh one of my favorite action movie um actors of course universal soldier etc too many to to mention but again you're you're you were the co-producer on this film but also responsible for the stunts as well um you were in the film so maybe give us a bit of an insight into into that process um okay pound of flesh was interesting um jean-claude is a very interesting fellow jean-claude is someone who i've been lucky enough to know for a very long time i met him before i came to hong kong and a lot of people, I think, get the wrong impression of him because he can be a little eccentric and the press likes to push a certain image of him. But he's a very good guy and he's, he's gone out of his way for me as a friend at various times. Um, with Pound of Flesh, Jean-Claude had been complaining about how far the budgets go in the West and how few shooting days you get. Um, a lot of it's due to piracy that a lot of people don't seem to understand when they're like, I'm sticking it to the man by downloading this, this movie. You're not. You're screwing yourself because we get smaller budgets and less time. Um, because something like a lot of those movies in, in America or Canada or Eastern Europe, you're getting 20 days to 25 days if you're lucky to shoot a whole movie um, for Pound of Flesh, by taking it to China, my producing partner, Henry Luck, we had a 45-day shooting schedule, um, which made it a lot easier to plan to, to do stuff. Yes, we had budgetary issues. Um, unfortunately, money that was meant to come never showed up uh, from one of the producers. So there were some budget issues that affected it. And don't get me started on the green screen. <laughs> um, 
that that killed us because we were like we can redo that for free um and that movie was pretty much financed on canadian tax credits and pre-sales so like a the funny thing was when we were putting it together i realized wait a minute darren shalabi has a canadian passport and if i can qualify on this many points i can get a huge chunk of the money from the canadian government as a tax credit so that's what we did so like uh ernie barbarash is a canadian director uh we had a canadian dop a canadian uh you know supporting actor john ralston uh darren is the main villain also canadian um we had all the ingredients and i have great memories from the shoot but i don't think the finished film was what we all set out to make there were there were some issues during filming and then unfortunately yeah it affected the, the flow of it i think but um with that one it was a case of uh, our production budget was very small, um, but we were still able to get the days. And I called in a lot of favors. Uh, that's why I brought in like John Salvetti from Donnie's team. Uh, I brought in Brahim from Thailand, uh, Mike Muller from Germany, uh, a lot of good friends from Hong Kong to play supporting roles. Uh, prime example for the car chase. Originally, we didn't even have the money to film a car chase it was going to be cut. So I suggested, well, I could just call Bruce Law, who's a friend of mine, and Bruce is like a, the best car stunt guy in Asia. And the Chinese producer was like, you can't call Bruce Law. We don't have the money for it. And I called Bruce, and Bruce, God bless him, was, Mike, is your name on the movie as a producer? I went, yeah. And he went, okay, I send my guys. <laughs> and he sent his guys for three days for very, very little money. And they helped us out and did a great job. Um, and the, I think the frustrating thing is people don't understand that the market has changed and budgets change. Like, uh, you know, I'll get people coming and go, oh, but you know, Pound of Flesh doesn't look as good as Double Impact. And like, Double Impact had a $20 million budget. Yeah. You know, 30 years ago when $20 million was huge, we didn't have that budget. We didn't have that time, that luxury. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I was a producer with two, uh, looking like a panda with two black eyes from the car fight for, for half the movie um, <laughs> and everything. So, you know, you, you, you battle through and it's like, um, I, I will always treasure the memories of making that movie. That's some of my, my greatest things. Like uh, Darren and myself went back, God, 30 odd years. Uh, we shared the same birthday, but a couple of years difference. Um, we'd known each other in England. We both, we both ended up in Hong Kong as you know, two guys with a dream, you know, and as, as he put it, you know, we used to have posters for Van Damme on our walls and here we were making a movie with him. So like the memories of shooting that movie are phenomenal. I think we did a pretty good movie. I just don't think it was as good as it could have been. And when you, and when you have that, uh, that experience of, of, producing a film and it doesn't quite come out like you wanted it to I, I guess you've just got to condition yourself to move on haven't you or, or is there is there always that nagging feeling that do you know what we should go back and uh make another version of it or or reboot um, or something like that we, we've, we've actually talked about that <laughs> um 
because the the original script by Joshua James was fantastic. Um, I don't think any filmmaker is a hundred percent satisfied with their work, and it's like a one of the things I learned when I first started interviewing people out here is like you'd interview someone like Jackie Chan and be like, "Drunken Master Two is the greatest movie of all time," and they're like, "It's shit." <laughs> you know, I'm like, you know, it's crap. This is wrong, and that's wrong. You know, Miracles is the greatest movie of all time, and I'm like, really? Yeah, so um, I think there's always a case of that. Um, and some directors are always adjusting, like Wong Wei is always fine-tuning. Um, and yeah, I think if we could have done things a little bit differently, if we could have planned a bit better, yeah, it was just one of those things. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, you never know. Yeah, and I think it's just a case of, you know, there's there's movies I've worked on that I thought were the biggest piece of shit in the world, and they did really well. Yeah, and there's other movies that I was like, this was the best movie of all time. This will bring world peace. Yeah, and it didn't make a penny and and everything. So I think it, it's 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 very hard to find. Yeah, but um, no, I mean, Pound of Flesh, it was a really good learning experience as well. Um, I so said the Chinese producer Henry Luck is a very good friend and partner of mine. It was great to work with John Brahim, everyone. Jean-Claude was a handful, but in, but in a good way. Um, and I got to make a movie with one of my best friends, sadly, just before he passed away. So it, it'll always be there. Yeah. So we chose Pound of Flesh because we wanted to explore your role as a co-producer on something that we sensed had limitations in terms of time, resources, and, and budget, but also because we wanted to talk about Jean-Claude. Um, well, Roger confessed, obviously, that his favorite movie, uh, Jesse VD movie, is Universal Soldier. I mean, for me, it would remain Bloodsport because my memory of being in France at the time, I lived in Bordeaux, and there was an old cinema called Le Francais. It was actually a theater, which was this gorgeous outside with the, the marble columns. And, and outside, there was a massive, massive poster of Jean-Claude Van doing a jumping sidekick against Bolo Young. And the queue was round the buildings. People were queuing up for hours to go and see, to go and see a blood sport. So I want to ask you, it's almost going to be the yes or BS uh, segment of the show. Is it true that there is a long longer version of Hot Target still to be released at some stage? Yes and no. Um, okay, Kino Lorber, is, uh, there's a company in America called Kino Lorber, which is releasing a Blu-ray of Hard Target later this year, and it's going to contain the American cut and the longer international cut that we got in the UK, etc. And a lot of people were complaining, oh, why aren't they using the director's cut, etc.? Because there is no director's cut. There was a longer assemble version, which was bootlegged and put out, which, as much as I love John Woo, is completely fucking OTT. It's insane. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, like with that one, there'd be music issues. That it, it was never completed and mastered. And I'm sure there's a, a much better version of that print somewhere on a, on a U-Matic or something, but I don't think we'll ever see a beautiful HD remastered cut because I don't think one, I don't think John Woo would spend the time to go back in and find the original materials and everything. And two, I hate to say that the cost of doing that would be very considerable. And I don't think, 
I think the only way that would happen would be if, some, if say, Universal did it themselves. But someone like Kino Lorber, it would be almost impossible to do. People forget the, you know, there's, not every film has master tape sitting around perfectly kept. Um, like prime example, this morning I posted on Instagram a photograph from uh, Yes Madam, from a deleted scene on that. The lost game of death footage was not lost. It was all labeled. You know, it was just as horrible as it may sound. In 1978, people wanted to see a Bruce Lee movie. They didn't want to see, you know, a rough, well, let's have 20 minutes of Bruce Lee, then let's have 20 minutes of someone talking about it. The audience wanted a movie. And Golden Harvest delivered a movie that did very, very well for the time. So... I w so with Hard Target, I don't think there's a longer version. Maybe one will appear and I'll look like an idiot for saying so, but I don't think we're going to see a remastered director's cut at any point. At least not not, not in the next few months. Yeah. No problem. Well, that got clear. So another question for you. Shall we start an online petition to get a very special edition of Bloodsport with everything that, you know, as fans, we want to, to see? Oh, fuck yes. <laughs> I have... I have, I have Pitched it to MGM myself. I mean, I was like, okay, Bloodsport, we could do commentaries, we could do interviews. You know, so many of the cast and crew are friends of mine and are still around in Hong Kong. Um, Jean-Claude would do a commentary for Bloodsport. He'd do interviews for Bloodsport. Um, he did interviews for the Double Impact release, etc. You've just got to approach him the right way. And for Bloodsport, he's aware of the impact that movie had on so many people. And it, it amazes me that MGM, who owns the Canon Library, is doing nothing with it. The same way, unfortunately, you know, Warner Brothers owns so many Hong Kong movies and does nothing with them. Uh, I posted the some footage from Dragonfight and from uh, Born to Defend a few weeks ago, and one of Jet Li's people messaged me and was like, mate, who owns these? You know, because... Even they're like, why has why has this movie never been released? Why has this movie never been given the proper release? And I think it's just sometimes the companies don't know what they have. Like for say MGM or Warner's, they have so many movies in their library. Unless someone literally brings it to the boss and is like, here it is. I don't think they realize. And it's just, but yeah, an online petition for Bloodsport. Set one up, Pascal. I'll sign it. Yeah. <laughs> Super. So listen, let's move on. I want to see that special edition. Yeah. <laughs> but I want you to be involved for sure. Um, so let's move on to a different scale altogether of movies. And to give me a segue, I'm going to read back to you something you wrote a long time ago on your Facebook page. Uh, here it is. Uh-oh. Big Star Wars fan. First movie that really made me want to get into movie making. First tattoo was a Star Wars one. So getting to work on Rogue One, the Star Wars story, and helping bring Donnie Yen into the Star Wars universe was fanboy dreams come true. What will you do when they catch you? you do if they break you? If you continue to fight, what will you 
over to you. How did you get involved in Rogue One? <laughs> um, it was very funny, and it's why I wish people understood attitude and ego. Um, the UK casting director called me up, uh, who I'd worked with before, Gina Jay, and she said to me, hey, Mike, I'm very sorry to bother you. I'm trying to contact this one actor. Would you know how to contact him? And I could have been a complete dick and gone, no, not unless you hire me, not unless you pay me, blah, 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 blah. But I was like, no, Gina's always nice to me. She's hired me before. Here's the contact for that actor, blah, blah, blah. Now, I do know that actor's manager doesn't speak much English. And I do know that that actor's manager will call me once she gets the message. And 10 minutes later, I got a phone call. And I was like, oh, Star Wars, this is cool. Yeah, so basically the next day they called me up and asked me, would I be interested in helping them with the, the Asian casting system for, for Rogue One? And hell yeah. I said, my, my first tattoo, the Boba Fett symbol when I was 18. Yeah. Um, so I was like, hell yeah. And I got, yeah, I got to have my name in the Star Wars blue font. So it's really cool. <laughs> that would have been incredible. Um, and, then not, um, and then the funny thing was the the actor they really wanted from day one was Donnie, but Donnie was unavailable. So we started looking at other actors and then Donnie messaged me to say that the movie he was meant to be making in New York had just imploded. So I was like, I need to call England. So I called England and was literally like, Donnie Yen is available now. You need to call him. And they made that call and Gareth Edwards got on the phone and they chatted and they signed him up, and I think he did a great job. And I would love to see a spin-off with his character, either as the animation or as a mini-series. Yeah, let's do something with that character. And the only sad aspect is, as good as Jung Wen was as the other character, it was meant to be Sammo Hong. <gasps> but Sammo turned us down. Oh, wow. Sammo was meant to play that character... I think partially because Samo was approached about working on Attack of the Clones, got excited, and then they never called him back. So when we called him about this one, he was kind of like, yeah, which was a pity. So that's what we could have had. We could have had Donnie and Samo side by side in the Star Wars universe. Now, that would have been fucking good. Yeah. <laughs> we, as part of this podcast, have reviewed now near enough 50 marketing campaign for different films from indie like the Blair Witch project all the way to um in the mandalorian just to you know to give you a hint nomadland we've done through a lot of things because it's part of what we do we want to inspire um, marketing professionals working in other industries to pay attention to storytellers and the ingenuity of indie filmmakers but i wanted to ask you you someone that's been working in the industry now for 30 years what would be to you the essentials that would be part and parcel of the marketing of a film? Um, that's very hard to say because there's been some great movies with shitty marketing and some shitty movies with great marketing. And I've been responsible for some of that. Like um, there is a movie that I spent a week with an editor re-editing the trailer going through the movie trying to find every available cool shot we could 
and the movie was terrible and we sold it and I feel very bad because every so often people go, yeah, I bought that movie and blah, blah, blah. It was so shit. And I'm like, oh, really? Sorry. Um, I don't know. Like, what I don't like are the trailers where they've invented footage for the trailer. Like, um, okay, something like, say, Terminator 2, where they did the teaser trailer where you see Arnold being built. That I, could, that I love. I don't mind that that's not in the movie. What I don't like is when they do something like the Highlander Endgame trailer, where they specifically shot stuff that they know isn't going to be in the movie, but it's just there to make the movie look better than it was. That, to me, is the bad aspect. Um, I mean, the problem is each distributor can fuck around with it and cut their own trailers. Um, like, you know, I've seen trailers for movies I'm in and like, holy shit, that was an action movie? You know? Um, and then like other trailers where you're just going, you know, these are all the wrong shots or this is just the wrong tempo. Um, I think the marketing is a very hard thing because for a lot of movies, it's taken out of the filmmaker's hands. Um, like I think even with Blair, which I'll probably have to listen to your podcast about it, but um, like that was all Artisan. Artisan took over all the marketing. Like people forget that Artisan's the company that made all the money from the Blair Witch Project. You know, it's like a prime example. Do you remember the Three Ninjas movies? All those I movies, do. the mm. Three Ninjas with the kids. When I first came to Hong Kong, I met an actress stroke producer called Xu Feng. And Xu Feng had produced the Kung Fu Kids movies in Taiwan. And she's like, Hey Mike, I made this movie called Three Ninjas for five hundred thousand US dollars. And I sold it to Disney for two million US dollars. <laughs> <laughs> And Disney made $150 million with it, you know. And she was like, oh, shit. You know, because Disney were like, okay, we know how to market this. And sometimes it's that, that, you know, the money needed for a really good advertising campaign is so often out of the range of the filmmaker. And it's like, a, you know, you know, sometimes you'll watch a movie and go, this movie was fantastic, but it was marketed so badly the trailer didn't sell it the the promo didn't sell it you know it's i wish i knew the secret because it's hard to be a billionaire <laughs> I, I, I so think, maybe pascal knows the secret because he's or you roger because you're both sharp dressed men it's like, yeah I, I think the thing is is that pascal and i talk about this a lot on the podcast is that i think that a lot of times marketing agencies in particular forget that they are promoting a product and in this case the product is the film and the people who understand the product the most are the people that made it and you can't detach the people that made the product from the promotion of the product and i think it's when you detach it and and they go off and do whatever they want it's that lack of understanding of the product that really that turns into a bad promotional campaign whereas if the people who produce the product stay involved hopefully to a to a large extent and you 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 can tell them these are the shots you should use or this is the angle you should use but it's when it gets detached that it all starts to fall apart for me just to answer your question mike sorry no, about I blair which so. yeah. blair which it was uh, on the podcast the, the marketing campaign is so obviously a two a story of two halves the first half are the filmmakers themselves promoting it and the moment artisan gets involved 
basically becomes the same old you know marketing campaign kind of is that is being produced by the corporates but they did it right they made all the money so from a financial <laughs> point of view i have to say they did it right yeah i'd like to be an artist and say it's all about the art but i want the money so <laughs> yeah but no i think it's very much what you said it's finding that balance the one thing that um roger and i have looked at through the the 15 marketing campaigns review you know we spoke about what we call the marketing pack and you know, the, the poster the, the teaser trailers the trailers we spoke about um film markets and festivals we spoke about a private screening you know all the techniques particularly one thing that the industry does well is the pr you know tv radio uh, and print media. But one thing that is very clear that is a lesson for all content creators out there is what I call the before, during, and after. You guys start talking about a film the moment you can, way before you even start to record anything. And once is also available in DVDs and Blu-rays, I mean, sometimes those campaigns of, of engagement with an audience can last for many years. No, I mean, it's, it's funny as well because the market has changed so much. Like, um, like when I first came to Hong Kong, absolutely everything got a cinema release. Like uh, you were talking about the, the classic art that co cinema in France. When I first came to Hong Kong, I used to go to the cinema probably five nights a week uh, for the princely sum of two pound a screening <laughs> and watch everything. And there were movies that I remember talking to like Olivia Gruner and Albert Payan and saying, yeah, yeah, I got to see Nemesis on the big screen. And they were like, where? How? You know? And the funny thing is the market began to change. Like, you know, the VHS window got smaller. Then people realized maybe we just go straight to VHS or to DVD. And like a prime example of that is Undisputed 2 with you know, Michael J. White and Scott Atkins. Uh, New Image made the movie. New Image did a screening, got such a great response that New Line came in and bought the movie. And then the problem was New Line tested it. It got huge ratings. It got like, you know, fantastic feedback. So they're like, we're going to go theatrical. And I remember Isaac Florentine calling me and being all excited. And then two days later, he was like, we're not going theatrical. Because New Line went, to make this work theatrically, we're going to need to add a soundtrack. We're going to need to spend X amount of money marketing it. And if it flops, it'll kill the DVD market. But we'll happily spend five million to ten million marketing it for DVD because we know we can make that money. So I think it, it is that case of the marketing campaigns have changed. And you know, sometimes I love the exposure for a movie on social media. You know, and I'm 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 I am just as guilty of promoting movies sometimes way too early. But sometimes I like it when a movie will sneak out of nowhere. Um, like a, but because it's always that fine thing of what's too much, what's not. And also getting, getting your cast and crew to understand not everything can go on social media. Like the amount of times I bang heads with actors and crew, I'm like, you can't put this footage online. Mm. Yeah, but I'm just sending it to my friend. I'm like, yeah, and then your friend is going to put it online. Your friend is going to share it. Oh, no, he won't. He'll just put it out. He'll just show it to his mum. I'm like, yeah, and then his mum will forward it to someone else and so on. Um, and that's sometimes the problem now that, you know, like, um, you know, now sometimes you'll watch a trailer and they'll, 
they'll give away a huge plot point like a Terminator Genesis. You know, really excited to see that movie. And then the trailer comes out and goes, guess what? John Connor's actually the bad guy. And he's a robot. And I'm like, why? Why are you putting <laughs> yes. that out there? Or imagine how cool Phantom Menace would have been if we didn't know Darth Maul was going to have a double lightsaber. Imagine watching that in the cinema and having him go, jum, jum. We'd have all, all gone mad. You know, so I think sometimes it's, you know, social media is both a bane and a curse for marketing a movie because, like, you know, people get excited and people, um, we were shooting Donnie Yen's Big Brother and a friend of mine goes, calls me up and goes, did you know one of the extras is live streaming from the set? And I'm like, wow. what? And they're like, yeah, yeah, he's <laughs> live streaming from the set. And he's like, oh, yeah, but Mike, it's for my fans. I'm like, you don't have any fans. And two, you can't do this. Um, but it's just people. Sorry, I need some water. Um, I think it's finding that balance. And you know, it, I think the best movies plan their marketing campaigns. Some movies, it's very as they go. Like um, I did the Scott Atkins movie, Abduction. And I don't think our advertising campaign for that was very strong. Um, like we had great footage and great photos and they used a very generic photograph of a uh, Scott with a gun in front of his face, which I was like, well, huh? Um, the same way there was a movie I worked on with Scott uh, called a uh, Max Cloud. Yeah. Which just come out actually on Netflix or Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Which they, they, they mismarketed because the concept of the movie, I think, is genius. You know, that it's someone getting pulled into a video game. But I think, how to say this politely? Um, I think they took a great concept and did it the worst, didn't spend the money making the movie to fully embrace the concept. And then also with the marketing, they kind of, okay, we've got it out there. And I think sometimes there's you need a film you need, do need a distributor who understands, as you said, that the filmmaker has put their heart and soul into this movie. You know, you want to see someone whose marketing campaign or poster designs or something for you are kind of along the way you want to go. Or if they're not, you know, they blow your expectations, they're, they're even better. You don't want it to be that your movie is being marketed as the most generic action movie of all time. So I think, as we said, it's finding, finding a balance and finding a way to, to market a movie. Like, okay, Prime's on with Highlander again. You know, the marketing in France was epic. You had all those huge posters along the Champs-Élysées and everything. In England, it was huge. If, if you look up online the american poster it's christopher lambert looking like a serial killer <laughs> a black and white photograph of christopher lambert going you know he's been on the run for a long time now he must fight and you're like what huh <laughs> you know, it doesn't tell you he's the highlander he's immortal yeah so i think it is a case of finding that balance as we're saying sometimes now i worry when i see a trailer and i go i don't need to see the movie now you've given it away like um like Hong Kong TV used to be notorious for that. Like, uh, I, like uh, when I first wrote Hong Kong, Twin Peaks was showing. And one night I was watching Twin Peaks and they went, next week on Twin Peaks. 
Bob, the killer is revealed to be Pascal. And you're like, oh, well, I guess there's no need to watch that episode now. You know, like, so I think it's that it's finding, finding that balance between the campaigns and like, um, and I always think it's interesting sometimes when you get an early release trailer that has so much footage that isn't in the movie, like Rogue One. You know, there's, there's so much in that yeah. first real Rogue One trailer that's nowhere to be seen in the movie. And I wish I could see that version. I would like to see that. Yeah, everybody. I mean, people were on YouTube commenting about it, and and so, so it's the other thing about films because it's such a uh, people get so involved emotionally. Then this, you know, hours and hours on YouTube and podcasts, you know, commenting about the films. So I don't know any other industries that also get free marketing by fans. I mean, we all buy other products and services in our lives, but I don't spend my time talking about it. Um, so that's absolutely fascinating. Oh no, no, um, the, and the funny thing is sometimes when people in the industry are talking about it. Like, uh, I still remember when Taken came out, I was going for lunch with Ronnie Yu, the director of Fearless and, you know, Bride of Jackie and everything. And Ronnie was like, Mike, have you seen Taken? And I was like, yeah. And it was great to be sitting there with Ronnie and a couple of other directors discussing just how fucking cool that movie was. You know, and the whole marketing campaign. And we were like, this is awesome. And then, you know, like that's when I go, it's that corner because you go, it is the, it is people showing their fans. Like uh, the other day, I, I revisited Ronnie Yu's movie Warriors of Virtue for the first wow. time in probably 25 years. And I was like, for a movie about Kung Fu Kangaroos, this is actually really, really cool. And it's got like a, a kind of like very positive kind of spiritual message. And I posted some clips, and even Ronnie was like, oh, yeah, maybe I should revisit this, <laughs> you know. And to me as a fan, you know, I'm like, Ronnie, you're going to revisit a movie just because I told him to. <laughs> you know, you, you sometimes get that weird, you know, crossover in the same way certain people or certain movies have an appeal in the West that they don't have in Asia. Like, uh, for an upcoming release from 88 Films, we just revisited Story of Ricky. And I still remember when Story of Ricky came out in Hong Kong, Fancy Wong was being groomed to be the next big thing. Story of Ricky came out and destroyed his career for 15 to 20 years. And in Hong Kong, the movie is either nobody remembers it or they remember it as the movie that destroyed Fancy Wong's career. But you explain to people, no, internationally, that movie has a huge cult following. And people are like, really? Yeah, and I think... As we said, it's that weird thing of certain movies, you know, striking a chord with certain people or certain things. Like, um, like uh, as Pascal mentioned with Bloodsport, Bloodsport sat on a shelf for close to a, two years because Canon Films had so little faith in it. And then it became their big sleeper hit. Mm-hmm. Um, in China, the first Wolf Warrior movie with Wu Jing, same thing. It sat on a shelf for about a year and a half. And... Hound of Flesh, bit of trivia, the character played by Brahim who, uh, in the uh, the nightclub fight, Wu Jing wanted to play that character. Mm. Yeah, wow. Because Wu Jing was like, my movie hasn't been released. Maybe I should do an international movie, just a cameo or something to like kickstart my career. And the funny thing was our director, Ernie, had a meeting with Wu Jing and walked away from the meeting going, that Wu Jing's a bit too cocky and full of himself. I don't like him. <laughs> and then when, when we were shooting the movie, Wolf Warrior came out and suddenly we're like, oh shit, 
it made all this money. And then when we did abduction uh, for ITE, which is like the, one of the China Netflix versions, um, you know, it's a, st a streaming service. Uh, Ernie was infamous at ITE for being the man who turned down Wu Jing. Yeah, he was he was now the guy who turned down the Beatles. Yeah, and it was just that that thing of like you're like, well, we didn't know, we didn't know the timing, we didn't know it was going to be that thing. I mean, it's like with Donnie and the It Man movies. You know, nobody was expecting those movies to do as well as expected. So yeah. Oh, smashing. Listen, this conversation is absolutely amazing. Plus, we're getting the sight and sounds of Hong Kong as well. <laughs> but unfortunately, our time together is only coming to an end. So what we've got for you as a surprise, because it's your birthday, very soon, as we mentioned already, and we're trying to make... And you brought you me know, some twiglets. <laughs> we're going to try and make you know some other dreams come true. So we've got some okay. questions for you, a bit of a quick fire aside in our chat so roger first question from you to mike okay if you could have a zoom call with a famous film director past or present who would it be hmm. i would love to talk damn there's, there's too many um <laughs> i'd love to talk to spielberg like i think as much as people shit on him and try and Give him a hard time. That is a man who embraced film and made us all fall in love with film. I think him and George Lucas, I would love to have a chat with. Um, probably just to hassle George Lucas about all the Star Wars merchandise I bought and books <laughs> and things that he now claims were never meant to be. And you know, like, oh no, I never planned that. Yeah. Um, like I remember talking to Alan Dean Foster in LA, and Alan Dean Foster's like, yeah, he got me to write a love scene between Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker. He hadn't planned they were going to be brother and sister. You know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think George Lucas and Steven Spielberg from, from the West. Um, from Asia. God, there's, there's too many. Um, I, I'll admit to fanboying about when I worked with, like, Yung Ping, being able to talk movies with him. Um, um, maybe Lau Gala, uh, the Shaw Brothers director, just to, to like, I'd met him several times over the years, and I'd interviewed him for an American documentary, but I'd never really got to sit down with him and, and go into depth about movies. We, the interview we did for the documentary was kind of a bit of a generic overview, and I think it was a missed opportunity. So maybe Steven Spielberg and George Lucas for America, maybe Lau Gala for, for Hong Kong and China, Fine choices. Be Takashi for Japan. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Next question for you. If you could remake a classic, which film would it be? From Hong Kong or from the West or from? Uh, let's go for the West. From the West, sorry. Hmm. If I could remake a classic, I've always wanted to remake The Princess Bride for Asia. I've always wanted to do like a China version of the Princess Bride because I think it could work so well. Um, to the point, I once was sitting with a Nicholas Jair and I was pitching him the idea. And about halfway through the pitch, I realized he'd never seen the Princess Bride and he thought I was the greatest storyteller of all time. And I was like, do I keep going or do I admit that it's not my idea? Um, 
maybe the Princess Bride. Um, I'd like to remake Beaujest. <laughs> always wanted to make a French Foreign Legion movie. Um, there's a not really a classic, but there's a movie called Jake Speed from the mid '80s that New World Pictures did, which is about um, to uh, like a a pulp pulp novel character who's actually real. Um, and like, I actually looked into buying the remake rights for that at one point because uh, I was thinking maybe we could remake it about a YouTuber. But this guy has like his, you know, he chronicles his adventures on YouTube. Uh, so it's a movie called Jake Speed by uh, Rain, uh, Wayne Crawford and Andrew Lane. Uh, that I'd love to remake. And then from Hong Kong, there's way too many. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Hong Kong and Korea, there's way too many that I'd love to revisit or have a go at. Yeah. What, what's your go-to movie when you need cheering up? Hmm. There's, there's a few. Um, God, I'm trying to think. With an Ale and I is one. I've got soft spot for With an Ale and I. Uh, An Animal House and the Blues Brothers. Yeah. Um, then there's also like, as Clayton says, like Aliens and the Terminator are, are two always go to ones. Uh, from Hong Kong, I'd say probably Dragons Forever. And Drunken Master are probably two of my go-tos. Um, I'm terrible. I, I go through phases where like, I'll find myself watching a certain movie like maybe five or six times in a month. Like, you know, like, as I'm old now, I'll, I'll put on a movie and fall asleep. You know, like, <laughs> you know, cr- I'll crash out to a movie. And sometimes I'm like, I'll, I'll, I'll find myself waking up in the middle of the night at, at some point in the movie that I haven't comprehended before um so i don't know i mean there's 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 a good view yeah there's a good view sorry about that yeah that's all right a question for me what is the worst movie you've ever seen (laughs) uh there's god there's a movie called was it something santa's summer house that stars like cynthia rothrock daniel bernhardt gary daniels um, that I had the misfortune to watch on a whim because somebody told me it was the worst movie of all time and I put it on and I was like okay this is the worst movie of all time <laughs> um, that's a terrible movie um, there's a lot of really bad movies out there and some of them are, I, 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 the same thing there's some really bad movies I find myself re-watching hoping this time they're going to be better like um it's not a very bad movie, but like Neil Marshall's Doomsday. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I always, it's, it's that movie where I always find myself revisiting, thinking that this time it's going to be fucking awesome. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's got all the elements, but it just feels like something got lost in the mix. And, and the final question we've got for you today, because it, as it, it's your birthday coming up. If you were having a big birthday party, which band or artist would you invite to play or sing for you and your friends? I'd say Queen back in the day. Sixth Sputnik, just so we could laugh at the way they look. I did like their music. Um, and the Ruttles, the fictional band from, from Rutland Weekend Television. You know, you know, probably that, yeah. 
Excellent. Well, I'm sure, Roger, you'll approve the selection, particularly uh, of Queen. Uh, did I see correctly on your Facebook page, Mike, that you were at Live Aid, or did I misread or misunderstand the message? Yes, I, I, I was at Live Aid, and it was for a, how long was I? I was about 16, 17, 1985, right? Or was that 85? Yeah, yeah. 85. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was just, I, I think I was just about to turn 17. And I was just like, this is fucking insane. Um, because it was exactly, it was a global jukebox and just, you know, back then to see, you know, it was before all the bands had started reforming to make their money, money back. You know how like nowadays everyone's on there like, yeah, we've split up. We're doing a farewell tour. Oh, we're back again. Yeah. Um, yeah back in the eighties bands had broken up. So to see bands coming back out was really good. So yeah, Live Aid was awesome, but I think probably the best concert was Queen at Wembley a year later because that was just insane. That was Queen at the height of the game. Brian Adams, In Excess, and who are and the Alarm with the support acts. Yeah, yeah. And while I cannot remember a single song by the Alarm, Brian Adams, In Excess, and then Queen were fucking awesome. Yeah, the, that, um, that's that's incredible memory. Um, I didn't go to Live Aid, as I said to Pascal when we talked about it last. I was actually in Spain when Live Aid was on, but I went to one of those Queen gigs the following year. I think they did a Saturday, a Friday, and a Saturday, and I was there on the on the Saturday. And of course, you can you can buy the Blu-ray of that concert, and I often yeah. think I was stood near that mixing post or the sound tower so we still pause the dvd and have a look in the crowd and see if i can spot myself and of course i had hair in those days so uh it's no no i I know that feeling i every so (laughs) often something will pop up and people like mike is that you and i'm like oh shit yeah (laughs) but like um but no i mean i think that's what's funny is that there's there's the yeah i'm sure with you guys it's the same thing there's movies or concerts or something that strikes such a chord for a specific time, like um, like probably one of the worst concerts technically for so many reasons was the Jean-Michel Jarre at Doc- Docklands because like it pissed down with rain. Like it was torrential, torrential rain for the entire concert. And of course, lasers and electronics back in the eighties did not work well with rain. <laughs> um, but but it was that same thing, the madness of it, and just. Yeah, being in a being in a, in like a stadium with eighty thousand to a hundred thousand people. Like um, when I first came to Hong Kong, I'd heard you know I'd see things that say like a you know Leslie Jones sells out Hong Kong Stadium for fifty nights, and I'm like holy shit. <laughs> and I go wait a minute, Hong Kong Stadium only holds seven thousand people. That's one night at Wembley. That's yeah. you know it's not not as impressive as it sounded, but yeah, you're like you know fifty nights at the Hong Kong Stadium. Holy shit. Um. And of course, this is how mad they are. They built a stadium here uh, in the mid '90s, and people complained about the noise, so it's never used. And I have at various times discussed what if we do concerts and give everybody cotton gloves so that when they clap, it's not as loud. Um, <laughs> and it's just this huge stadium that sits vacant for 99% of the year, and just when we have the rugby sevens, it's open. But it's like a it's thing. So yeah, but no, um, yeah, I'd say 
those are probably the best concerts. Yeah. Well, listen, Mike, we can't thank you enough for joining us in no, this no, special thank celebration. You. And, uh, apologies for, for taking up so much time. And <laughs> if we didn't get to anything like the madness of ultimate justice, I apologize. Yeah, <laughs> that's quite all right. Now, in fairness, you know, I almost feel like I want to apologize to all the other filmmakers, screen performers that we've not mentioned. Time is against us, but you know, we all, Roger and I, you, we all thank you for your hard work and, and, and just the entertainment that, that you bring to us. No, no, no. I mean, thank you. Guys. I mean, as I said, it sounds cliched and stupid, but I wouldn't change it. Yeah, like, <laughs> there, there are mad times like, um, 11 years ago, I was stuck in the French Congo. Um, I went to make a Chinese movie, and the director and the production manager stole all the money and left us in the French Congo. <laughs> um, and literally, so literally, I woke up one morning, came down for breakfast, and like, oh, your director left. I'm like, oh, he went outside. They're like, no, he left. And the director and production manager had left, had canceled all our plane tickets, so we couldn't leave. And it took... It took me a month to get back to Hong Kong. And I was like, okay, fuck film. I've given up. I want to have a real job now. And I think I lasted two weeks. And I was like, I need to go and work on film again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's like anything. It has its ups and downs. I'm sure with you guys, sometimes you love your job. Sometimes you hate it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still a fan. And um, like I say, I mean, yeah, this is, this is Hong Kong. And it's been my home for 30-odd years. Like, uh, I was laughing with my landlord because uh, I realized this year I've lived in my apartment in Hong Kong longer than I ever lived in my house in England. Mm. <laughs> Another feeling. You know, <laughs> yeah, and I was like, holy shit, I've now actually lived here longer than, I, longer than I ever lived in my house in England. And my landlord was like, okay, but you do know it's not your house, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, no, I mean, and just like, you know, it's... Of course, there are times when I go, maybe I should have taken a nine to five. Maybe I should have been a bit more sensible, sensible about certain things. Like, um, like often when I get injured on a movie, I'm like, why did I do that? Like, uh, when we did abduction, I managed to break my sternum with my chin. Um, <laughs> basically, it, I was getting killed in the movie, and they're like, you've got to tuck your head as you go down. And I tucked a little bit too hard. And... Everybody heard this noise and was like, Mike, are you okay? I'm like, no. What are we going to do? I was like, we're going to finish the scene. Why? Because I'm not coming back tomorrow. Um, and like with that, I, I was in full makeup. I look like the Tex like Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm covered in fake blood, fake tattoos. They take me to a Chinese hospital where we're told it's going to be a 12-hour wait. So I'm like, just take me back to the hotel. I'm fine. The, the unit nurse goes, you know what? I'll take you to my clinic. We go to her clinic and I start laughing, which is really painful because <laughs> we're using her clinic as a location. And then she brings out a doctor who looks like my friend who's playing the doctor in the movie. And the doctor looks at me and is immediately like, someone should call the police. You know? <laughs> and they explain to him, oh, no, no, he, it's okay. He's been fighting. Well, we should call the police. No, no, he's been fighting. It's okay. He starts wiping me, my chest and everything, and the tattoos start coming off. So he's like, well, the tattoos are coming off. I'm like, it's okay. They're not real tattoos. Then he starts rubbing at the real tattoos. I'm like, no, that's a real tattoo. That's not going <laughs> to come off. Um, and then like, yeah, he was like, you've broken your sternum. And I was like, okay, what can we do about it? He's like, nothing. <laughs> you, know, you just got to let it heal for the next three months. So 
there are times when I'm like, why did I choose this? Why can't I just be sitting in a comfy office? But um, you get to have mad adventures. Um, like I said, you know, like I, I, I posted over the weekend, like, you know, when we did The Mummy 3, I got to work with Dick Armstrong. And every day talk to him about James Bond movies and Indiana Jones and Total Recall and all that kind of stuff. And like, you know, I'm working with like Yun Ping and Jet Li and Jackie and Donnie. Um, when we were filming Big Brother, for instance, um, in Big Brother, I play a kind of like uh, Dana White wannabe. I didn't know I was in that scene until that morning. Like I brought in all the fighters and then one of the ADs called me and said, well, Donnie wants to know what time you're coming. And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, you're in the scene. So um, we were filming that. And one day Donnie decided to sit down with me and the stunt guys and talk about how to make action movies for three hours. Much to the annoyance of the director and the producer, but I was like, is Donnie in talking action movies? You know, you can't pay me to go away from that. So it, it's... As cheesy as it sounds, I should thank you guys for watching the movies and for an interview like this encourages me to keep going. <laughs> like it's it's very easy to to sometimes get in that thing like, oh, this is this is a pain in the ass. Maybe it didn't work or whatever. So no no, thank you guys. And I said I will check out your podcasts and everything and maybe get you guys to work on an advertising campaign for me. Yeah. You know, yes. Well, You've been very welcome. I mean, not only are we, are we scholars, you know, we studied the marketing campaigns in great detail, as you, you'll hear, but we're of, of course, like you, we've paid our dues. I mean, I've been working in, in the world of marketing since 1996 for me. When did you start, Roger? 1987. <laughs> well, no, you didn't start in 87. Well, you were selling things around the, the, the markets in Edinburgh. That, that, was, uh, that was when I left university. So, yeah, that was it. Yeah, <laughs> the year so, after that I, left concert. I left university in 1987 but not on good terms <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so very quickly for your viewers and listeners thank you so much for joining Mike Leader Roger Edwards and myself for the celebration of one year of podcasting studying the, the marketing campaigns of many many films so follow Mike's advice follow your passion have an adventure until the next one go out there and make sure the marketing is done right Bye for now.